Hi, I'm Craftsmanship Quarterly audio producer Chris Igusa. Today's episode is going to be a little different. We're continuing our series called Artisan Interviews, in which we bring you conversations with the artisans behind the stories and with those who write about them. Today's guest, Alden Wicker. Alden is an award-winning journalist and sustainable fashion expert. She's written investigative pieces and deep dives on innovation, materials, and consumer trends for publications like The New York Times, Vogue, Wired, and many others. She's written several blockbuster articles for Craftsmanship Quarterly, exploring the future of recycled cotton, a little-known and underappreciated wool industry in Argentina, and the confusing ethics around vegan fashion. And she's the founder of the website EcoCult. It's a leading international information hub on sustainable and ethical fashion. I sat down with Alden to talk about her disillusionment with the idea of voting with your dollars, why the cotton industry is in such disarray, and some concerning new research into toxicity and chemicals in fashion. Thanks for joining me, Alden. I wanted to start off by asking what got you into this world of sustainable fashion in the first place? Well, you know, I've always been interested in sustainability. Um, I grew up in a household that had subscriptions to Newsweek and Time Magazine. And I, I remember when I was in middle school, I started turning down plastic bags because I had read about peak oil and I knew plastic was made from oil. And so I started doing my part very, very early. So I I started my blog in 2013 because I wanted to talk about all fashion sustainability. And it was a lifestyle blog. Blogs were big back then. Gradually, fashion just took over. Um, and I love writing about fashion sustainability because it's it's fun, but also it's super fascinating because it involves almost every topic you could potentially think of. Economics, um, chemistry, agriculture, uh, human rights, like you name it. Um, and I get bored easily. So there's always something new to think about and talk about when it comes to fashion. So since you started your blog and started doing work in this area, do you feel like consumers are becoming more aware of how all of these forces that you mentioned kind of interconnect? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, just to see the rise of the ecosystem of sustainable fashion influencers in that time. I mean, when I started, there were very few of us. You could count them on one hand, and now it's 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 a thing. Um, and consumers, and like I've seen also that reflected in the traffic that comes to EcoCult with people looking for um, answers to questions, right? Um, that they have, but also just looking for, you know they want to buy a pair of jeans that's more sustainable. Um, and so th they're showing up and they're, they're looking for this and it's, it's really incredible to see. Yeah. And it's such a simple question, like what jeans should I buy? But the answers are so often really complex and difficult to address. And I think you've done a great job, uh, writing about some of these complexities for craftsmanship, but for those of us trying to live sustainably and vote with our dollars, what should we be doing and where should we be putting our time and energy? Yeah, well, I think one uh, thing that people need to understand is that um, I I don't believe in or agree with the idea that every purchase you make is a vote for the, the 
the planet that you want to see or the world you want to see. Like there's this neoliberal um, ideology that has been cracking apart, obviously, over the past year that says that the government's useless. So, you know, corporations and startups and socially conscious companies are going to step in and they're going to be the ones to fix it. So you see a lot of fashion brands that have this marketing around like, we're fixing this incredibly complex, giant worldwide problem, one pair of shoes at a time. I started questioning this around 2017. And um, I think most thinking people and industry people and activists at the point are sort of stepping away from this idea that we can just shop our way out of this problem or we can, if we just choose the the quote unquote correct item to buy, um, the, the, the bad companies will go out of business or the bad companies will lose, um, lose business or market share. And that's just not true because as you say, it's, incredibly complicated. And I think people want everything put into good or bad categories. And you see this a lot, like where people are just so confused where they're like, oh, I thought Everlane was supposed to be sustainable. But then there was like that thing, like where they were accused of union busting. I guess I'm not supposed to buy from them anymore. I don't know what to do. And like, that's a lot of stress for something that's supposed to be fun, you know, and it, yeah, it's supposed to be fun to go shopping, to find something that makes you feel good about yourself. And, and like, it's just way too much to ask a typical, um, overstressed, overworked, you know, um, consumer or a person who has a lot of different things going on and is not a chemist and is not an expert in, uh, international development to like think about all of these things before deciding what to buy. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's really interesting that you bring up, I guess it's a disillusionment um, of people thinking about voting with their dollars. And I remember how huge that was, um, you know, over the the past decade and kind of brands that do good, really going to save the world. Um, And yeah, you mentioned that there's been a lot of disillusionment around that. So where do you think that thinking needs to progress to? Um, How should people begin to reframe how they look at these issues? You know, there's actually a limited amount that we can do within America's borders at this point because every time... Uh, every time we fight for higher wages or unionization, now companies can just outsource to another country that doesn't have that. So moving forward, Mm. there's a lot of talk about um, redoing international trade deals so that as part of the trade deal, um, it's saying that, you know, uh, it's not like you can't just exploit workers in Ethiopia Um, Because that has an effect on Americans too, which is, you know, Americans have lost all of our, almost all of our manufacturing jobs because Mm -hmm. it can be done more cheaply elsewhere because those people aren't earning a living wage. They're working overtime, unpaid overtime, uh, you know, their rivers are completely polluted and toxic, all of these different things. So that's another idea that's come up that is, um, really exciting. And, and they're actually looking at legislation that's like that in Germany, um, where, uh, it's sort of taking the union concept and putting it across borders and saying, um, you know, the values of 
supporting unions and supporting workers that apply in our country also apply to the countries that make goods for us. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like applying political pressure and thinking about these things more broadly is incredibly important. It also seems like, I mean, just to push back a little bit, that um, kind of the voting with our dollars idea still maybe holds some weight. Um, You know, if people refuse to support certain labor practices in Ethiopia, for instance, that seems like it may kind of help to further that cause and to help the situation. Well, um, okay, there's two things I would say to that. One is, (laughs) how do you know that your clothing is part of this system in Ethiopia? Like, maybe it says it was made in Italy, but it was really just assembled in Italy and all everything was dyed and and spun and woven and grown in Ethiopia under horrifying conditions, but you would never know. So that's one thing I would say. The second thing I would say is that there's pretty much no examples of boycotts um, that have been, that have affected sales of a company. Even Mm. in the 1990s, the, uh, the very coordinated and, and impressive campaign against Nike and child labor, um, it worked not because it affected their sales, but because it became really hard for Nike to hire good people to work at their company. Um, it failed the cocktail party test, which is you go to a party, you tell people where <laughs> they work, and they wince right? because they're like, right. oh, no. But, <laughs> <laughs> but at this point, the behavior that we abhor is 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 par for the course in the fashion industry. So it doesn't matter which fashion company almost <laughs> that you work for. Uh, like it's the same almost everywhere. Now, I will say that there's not nothing you can do in your role as a consumer, right? Like I would say that people need to s- start thinking of, about themselves as like 98% citizen and 2% consumer, but Mm -hmm. for the 2% of your identity that is purchasing things, right? You are more than what you buy. But for the the part of you that likes to purchase things, I think it is great to think about these things and especially to support artisan brands or brands around labor and um, supporting traditional craftsmanship because like there's a lot of brands who are like carbon neutral or they offset their carbon emissions or they say they do this or that. And it's really hard to wrap your mind around like how much more you should pay for a product that's carbon neutral when you don't even really know what that means. And like, that's such clearly a problem that needs legislation. But you know, if you buy, like I just, <laughs> I fell down a rabbit hole on this one. Um, it's a, it's a Danish Peruvian brand this morning called Aini. Um, and I ended up purchasing a few beautiful things that were like crocheted uh, or knit items because, because I know that there's a person, I know what the person looks like at the other end of that. And I know that it's supporting these, you know, smallholder alpaca farmers and it's supporting uh, cotton cotton farmers in Peru and and then the weavers and all these traditions and all of these things. And that feels really, really good to me. And it's it's a pleasure to to mm. shop that way. Um, versus sort of 
you know, shopping at a mass market brand who's like, we pledge to make 75% of our materials more assistant. I mean, whatever, mm-hmm. right? Like, yeah. okay, fine. Yeah. Um, so I would say that's a great way to, um, to feel like you're making a difference in somebody's life um, in a really tangible way. And also just to feel like to have a very tactile experience with your, with your fashion that makes you appreciate it. Um, yeah. even more. Yeah. Uh, I know you've written about some trends going on with kind of recycling, uh, in the cotton industry. You'd mentioned that there were quite a few updates there. Would you want to talk about kind of what's going on in recycled cotton right now? And also, other trends that you're seeing that are either interesting or exciting or <laughs> concerning in this kind of recycled fashion world. Yeah. So for that story, I visited um, a couple different labs that were had just started pitching their um, recycled material to um, investors and, and fashion brands. And the, none of them were commercialized yet. But basically, they were taking um, waste cotton or waste cellulosics and they were turning it into new man-made cellulosic fiber. And by that, I mean, rayon, viscose, modal. Mm-hmm. And so it was really exciting because, um, yeah, a lot of cotton goes to waste. You can only physically recycle, chop up and turn cotton into new products, um, like once or twice, because every time you chop it up and recycle it, it it degrades further. So you can make fluffy things, but you're not going to be able to get sheets out of sheets. Right. Mm. Um, and so these processes take a proprietary mix of chemicals and they break the cotton down. They make it into, um, this like goop. And then they use sort of, it's like a tiny pasta maker. Uh, (laughs) and they, it spits out this little thread. So that's, that's a fabric since then. Um, Two of the more exciting innovations have started scaling up and they have pilot plants. Um, you know, they've been in some red carpet dresses and um, they're not huge yet, but I think in the next couple of years, you could probably walk into maybe your local H&M and buy something made with these fibers. One's called Spinova. The other is called Renewcell. Um, so that's exciting. But the other half of that story was me visiting some better cotton initiative farms, uh, in Gujarat, India. And so better cotton initiative is an initiative that the brands put money into, and then they go out and they train farmers on how to use less pesticides and less water. It's not organic. A farmer could go through this program and then like maybe go organic later, but it was supposed to improve on a lot of the things that you hear about cotton. Like you hear that cotton is water thirsty and um, that it uses a ton of pesticides and the way we grow it right now. And it's, you know, GMO cotton and the way we grow it, you know, kills the soil. Um, Since then, (laughs) since then, uh, BCI has been embroiled in cotton. And BCI is the Better Cotton Initiative. Better Cotton Initiative, yeah. So they've been embroiled in uh, controversy regarding China because they included several cotton producers and farms and um, facilities in uh, Xinjiang, which is the region where um, the Uyghurs have been taken out of their homes and put into forced labor camps. I mean, it's been called a genocide, which I think is, is... 
I'm not an expert, but I think that's a pretty accurate way to call it. And so yeah. the United States um, has started uh, blocking shipments of cotton and tomatoes, cotton products and tomatoes that come from that region. And um, BCI just sort of went back and forth and made a hash of the whole thing, right? I mm. mean, when this first came out, people were like, how could you possibly certify or work partner with these facilities if they're using slave labor? And then BCI, the parent organization, sort of pulled back and said that they weren't going to work with uh, Xinjiang anymore. But then the Chinese office said they were, which is not surprising, Mm -hmm. Um, given, you know, the heavy hand the Chinese government has in these things. And, um, so Levi's pulled out of BCI and, you know, then all these brands came out with statements saying they don't support forced labor and they weren't going to source from the region. And then H&M, you know, disappeared from Chinese shelves. It was a huge boycott. Um, China's very good at effectuating boycotts, <laughs> um, more than Americans, apparently. Right. Uh, and so all of these brands are sort of caught between two, this cold war between two superpowers, and it's being played out in fashion and in cotton specifically. Um, well, I wanted to, you know, before we, we finish up, I wanted to also mention you are currently working on a new book, uh, right? And yeah, I you know it sounded sounds really interesting. I, can you tell us a little bit about the book and what you're working on and and uh, some of the research that you've been doing for it? Yeah, the book is about the chemistry that's used on our fashion and how it's impacting our health. So I first got interested in this because a, a radio show called me up a few years ago and they said, "Hey." Um, so American Airlines attendants are suing American Airlines over uh, toxic uniforms. Hmm. Uh, can you come on the show and comment? And I said, no, I can't. I have no idea what you're <laughs> talking about. <laughs> I didn't know yeah. that fashion could be toxic. And it turns out it can be in a myriad of ways. And, you know, it's very rare for someone to become acutely sick from fashion Mm-hmm. You, these these airline attendants have become acutely sick. You know, they've had um, full body rashes, thyroid issues, mm. hair falling out, uneven heartbeat, trouble breathing, uh, anaphylactic shock. Oh, wow. They're all given the uniforms at the same time. They were able to talk to each other, you know, on these long flights about what the symptoms they're experiencing. And then if they took them off after a few days of work, symptoms would subside. Now there's like long-term problems, thyroid issues, um, you know, permanent skin damage, um, organ damage, chemical sensitivity. So now if they're exposed to just a tiny, tiny bit of certain chemicals, their entire body reacts, right? Mm. Uh, they can't think, brain fog, blurry vision, all these things. So I've been researching and it's astounding how many chemicals are used on our clothing. Even mm. a white cotton t-shirt can have all sorts of stuff on it. And there's very little legislation in the United States to keep a fashion brand from using all manner of chemicals that have been banned <laughs> for sale and for use in the United States on clothing and then selling it to your eye. There's three or four chemicals that the federal government says you can't 
have them on children's clothing, but nobody's really checking the boxes Mm. as they come in. Nobody is. Nobody's keeping watch on this. And so you can have, uh, you know, of course there's dyes, right? Synthetic dyes. There's durable water repellent finishes, which is like Teflon basically, which Mm -hmm. we now know is incredibly toxic. Um, That's on your outdoor gear and your your boots and everything. There's um, fire retardants aren't as much of a thing, but there is finishes that are that exhale formaldehyde, and then there could be pesticides, right? They'll spray right. down pesticides, biocides, fungicides. They'll spray all of that inside the shipping containers and the and the boats that bring our stuff over here, and then that's on your clothes when you buy them. So there's it, and you can't see it. I mean, sometimes you could smell it, right? You tear mm-hmm. open a package that you bought off of Instagram. And you just get hit by this chemical smell. <laughs> right. That happens. You put that right back in that package and you send it back because it is not good for you. No. Wow. That's uh, it's kind of shocking to hear, honestly. It's not something that I'd thought about before. Are, are there things that people can look out for in terms of trying to get clothing that is safer and doesn't have as many chemicals? Is, is organic certification one thing that can help? Or how can people think about that? Yeah, so actually, surprisingly, organic certification um, really has nothing to do with <laughs> mm. <laughs> with how safe your your clothing is, right? You can buy organic a cotton or again or an organic cotton thing, and then it can have all sorts of stuff on there. So um, you could throw that out the window. But there's there are some things that you can do, uh, and of course, this will be a chapter in my book that will go into a lot more detail. But some yeah. of the things that you can think about is um, buy from brands that are. Um, either well-known brands that care about their reputation. So mm. the Levi's, the Nikes, the Adidas of the world, um, especially European brands, because Europe has a much more stringent regulations around what you can put on clothing. So uh, brands that care about their reputation. If if you buy from a nobody's ever heard of brand uh, from a Facebook ad or one of those <laughs> banner ads, and it takes three weeks to get to you, and it smells like chemicals, mm-hmm. I guarantee you <laughs> that brand does not care um, yeah. about, about this. And so brands that care, like they're doing testing, they have they give lists of chemicals to their producers that they don't want them to use and also that they don't want to see on their, on their fashion. Um, right. Natural textiles tend to be better. It's no guarantee, but they tend to be better. Um, avo- you can avoid... Um, Avoid performance textiles, uh, you know, anything that says like do all these amazing things like odor fighting and uh, anti-stain and, um, you know, anti this or that, anti-wrinkle, all of these yeah. different things. Avoid, things avoid that are those. packed with technology. <laughs> right. Exactly. Chemical technology. Um, and uh, do not use fragranced laundry products. They are very bad. Mm. Um, hmm. very, very bad. So, um, those are a few tips. Um, but I will say that there's going to be a lot more in the book and, um, that's coming out, uh, in a year or so. So, uh, you know, if people are interested in that, I would encourage them to go to ecocult.com or uh, my other journalism website, aldenwicker.com. And, and on both sides, they can find a way to sign up for my newsletter and, uh, and they'll, then they'll know when it's coming out. That's fantastic. I I will definitely be uh, signing up because I want to know more about this. Um, And I knew there was a reason I didn't like fragranced detergent, but now I have proof (laughs) that it is bad. 
Um, great. Well, so you mentioned your website. Um, if people just want to follow your work, where else can they find you, like on social media? Yeah, so I, I'm on Twitter, um, Alden Wicker. Instagram, um, we have EcoCult. I'm not the one running it, but it has all of our latest articles um, about sustainable fashion on there as well. So that's another good way to keep up with the work that I and my team is doing. Great. Well, Alden, thank you so much for talking with us. And uh, this has just been super enlightening. So thank you. Thank you so much, Chris. It's been a, a pleasure. This episode's guest was Alden Wicker, an award-winning journalist and sustainable fashion expert. It was produced by me, Chris Igusa. Check out more of Alden's work in Craftsmanship Quarterly, a multimedia online magazine about artisans, innovators, and the architecture of excellence. More stories, videos, audio recordings, and resources on craftsmanship can be found at craftsmanship.net. Craftsmanship.net